I want to invite you first. Let's open up our Bibles if you have them or your phones. Uh, I was debating, okay, what, what resurrection account do we read this morning? Um, you could pick any one of the four, and, and they're all really good, and they all have different kind of details. But I'm going to read from John 20 uh, this morning, verses 1 to 10, and then we'll go from there. So it says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. (laughs) He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So uh, we we had a, a, on spring break, we had a recent quick trip to Fargo, and uh, we were visiting some of the the people down there in the church that we're connected with. And as part of that, um, Stephen, the pastor down there, he'd invited me. They were having an apologetics night at one of the local colleges put on by crew or Campus Crusade for Christ. And so he said, hey, do you want to come with me to this evening? And so I said, yeah, that would be kind of neat. So um, they had a couple sessions. And so one of, the guy, the, one of the leaders of crew, his dad was there as part of a presentation. And uh, his dad had gone years before to Purdue University. And him and another guy were talking, uh, doing a session on the proof for the resurrection. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be good. And, and so he told this story. It was a really interesting story where he, he'd been an honors student, really smart guy at Purdue. Um, and as one of his classes, he chose to defend the proof of the resurrection for a paper. And when he did, and so he, I think he had to submit a proposal for this, and the prof rejected him and said, no, no, we're not going there. That's too controversial. You can't do that. And he was like, well, why can't I? In fact, he, one of the... One of the other guys in his class, I guess he'd become aware of, that he was defending gun control. And he's like, if this person can defend gun control, I'm pretty sure that I can defend the resurrection. Um, but, but they rejected him. He actually appealed to the academic dean, uh, I think, of that department. And, and so finally, after a lot of consternation, they allowed him to present this paper. He said he put more work into that paper than he had ever. And... I mean, this, this guy was a smart guy, and he said he gets the paper back, and they gave him an F. And so he was like, oh. And so then he appealed again, actually, and ended up getting a C. So he got it up to a C somehow. Um, but it was interesting, because in, in, in telling this story, he talked about uh, Gary Habermas, who's a prof at Liberty University, who's done a, a ton of research around the resurrection. In fact, you can go online and check him out. He's got his own website, GaryHabernas.com. You can check him out on YouTube. Um, but his research, he points out, and I looked, at just, I looked at just a little bit of it on his website. I mean, there's tons. Um, but he, he points out that 
Biblical scholars, both Christian and secular, yes, there are actually secular Bible scholars who don't actually follow Jesus. That's a thing. Uh, All of them have almost near agreement that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, that we know something happened. So they agree on that. They agree that we don't really, we don't totally know what happened. that, That they can agree on. And we don't know what to do with this. And that's kind, of, that's kind of where they agree. That's kind of where they'll at least meet. And, and so, you know, when you look at the resurrection of Jesus, when we look at the historical proof of it, any, any historian with integrity, they, they cannot dis, you can't just dismiss the accounts of the resurrection. Not, not based on how we believe history. Like, how do you know that uh, George Washington lived? How, how do you know that? You haven't met him, right? There, there's, there's processes that we go through that we come to, yes, we believe this to be true, and not getting into that this morning, but there's oodles of proof for the resurrection. Now, so the evidence is overwhelming that something happened. Now, we can accept that basis of fact but it, but it doesn't, even that, that doesn't mean it will have any real significance to our lives. There is secular Bible scholars out there who study this, right? We can still, we can choose to ignore the enormity of the claims of the resurrection. For, for some of us prone to skepticism, maybe, you know, we might wonder about some of the alternative theories that have been put forth. You may have read about some of them that have been suggested. You know, one, one of them, one of the main ones that's been put forth is, that the resurrection was carefully crafted by the, the early church later on in the very uh, late first century to kind of give shape to the faith. But, but that doesn't add up for countless reasons when you really start to explore. There, there are, when you look at the four resurrection accounts, there's next to no Old Testament references in the narratives of the resurrection of the empty tomb. There's, there's almost nothing. Now, the rest of the New Testament books, as they go further, the, the church starts to pour over the scriptures and you begin to see more Old Testament references as they begin to grapple with what happened here with Jesus. But the reason for that is the idea of the Jewish Messiah rising from the dead was completely foreign. They had no grid for that in their, their Jewish thinking that the Messiah would die and then be raised again to life. Women are the first witnesses in the account. No offense to women, but they were not regarded as credible witnesses in the first century. We may not like that, but that was the first century. So to put women as the first witnesses, if you're crafting a narrative, you don't do that. In fact, yeah. Uh, the The way that Jesus is presented even in the resurrection accounts, very human but with a transformed body that does really odd things is, is unique, right? There's been, there's been claims that John and Luke, that they wrote their gospels later to combat this belief that was rising in some circles that uh, Jesus wasn't a f- real human being, that he was something divine when he was on this earth, but he wasn't really human. And so that was, and so some people say they wrote that, and you know, they showed him eating fish in, that, in, one, in the gospel and being physically touched. So they were showing his humanity. But if you're, if you're crafting that later to argue against that, 
they're still telling stories about him going through walls, about reappearing and disappearing. I mean, it's, it's like, read through the accounts. It's like Jesus was doing cool stuff, but really odd stuff. Now, the biggest challenge, if you're going to look at ways to poke holes in, in the resurrection, if, if you're crafting all this, decades later as the church is going, why is there no mention in the resurrection narrative of the future Christian hope that we have, that we sing about, that we talk about? There's, there's next to no mention of it in the gospel accounts. Rather, the gospel accounts, they're really straightforward. Jesus was raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. He's no longer there. Therefore, he is the Messiah. He's the Lord here and now. This new life has begun. That's really the simplicity of the gospel accounts. So if these accounts were carefully crafted by the early church, they certainly would have included attention, you would think, that would have been advancing the theological convictions that the church was holding. But they don't. As N.T. Wright, he says this, he says, Had the stories been invented toward the end of the first century, they would certainly have included a mention of the final resurrection of all God's people. They don't because they weren't. In fact, you know, when when you read through the four gospel accounts of the tomb being found empty, the the details actually are pretty basic. Like even what we just read there out of John this morning, it's it's really basic. In fact, you, you, you get the feeling as you read them almost that like, the disciples of Jesus and his followers, they're, they're grappling with what happened. Like, like, really, what happened here? He was dead and buried in a tomb, and the tomb is empty. What is going on? You can, you can almost, as you read them, you almost get the sense. Like, I found I got the sense this week going, I, I want more details. Right? Like, I think, especially in our world today, we want, like, we want the story. What's the story? Where's the details? And it's like, there's lots kind of, there's, there's stuff missing because they're, They're going, what happened? But there's in that, there's an authenticity to what we read. For for all the objections that seek to poke holes in the historical account of the resurrection, there's reasonable explanations, and there's a ton. I'm not going to go into them, but we could sit here all morning and just kind of take them out, but we're not, we won't do that. Now, can we prove scientifically that this happened? Right? Like, that's maybe the question. Can, can we get into a lab and can we create the right conditions and, you know, prove that this happened? No. We can't. So then people, well, that's a problem. Well, there's lots of stuff in history that's happened that we cannot recreate that we take as fact. So... Again, in saying all this, this isn't lock-proof, lock-type proof that the resurrection happened. But all that to say is that the resurrection, the claims of the resurrection, has historical credibility. As much, as much, as much as any event in human history, the resurrection has credibility for its validity. Okay, but that, but that doesn't get us to the question. This is kind of the question I want to camp on this morning is, Because we can know all that, but, oh yeah, the next slide. Why even bother 
with the resurrection? Like really, why, why bother with it if we know all this, right? Like, cool, like, okay, some dude came supposedly from the dead. He came back from the dead in the first century. He claimed to be God and, and his followers started this movement. Great, okay, now, you know, let me get back to my TikTok dance. Let me get back to watching my reels. Let me get wa- back to my investments and, and quest trade. And let me get back to living my life. Why bother with the resurrection? And I don't think that's a question that we need to be afraid of at all. In fact, I think that's a question we should ask in these days. Why bother with this? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the Apostle Paul, he spends an entire chapter looking at all this. He looks at the historical validity of the resurrection of Jesus and all those who saw him after. And then he goes into it explaining all this. And he he says, like, he's brutally honest. He says, if this didn't happen, if what we're claiming didn't happen, then our faith is totally futile, he says, and we are people to be most pitied. Like, throw it all away Forget about it. It doesn't matter if this didn't happen. But if it happened, he says. If it happened, he says. We can't just dismiss it. A guy came back from the dead. So so to answer this, to understand the resurrection of Jesus within the wider context of the Bible... Again, why should, because why should we care? I think we need to zoom out, if you will, and take a look at just the big, wider view of Scripture. What, what does Scripture reveal to us? And first, what we're presented with is the problem. All caps. The big problem. God created us. And I'm not going to get bogged down here into all the stuff around creation. God is our creator He created us for purpose. He created us for relationship. But there's this desire for control. There's this desire for self-determination. We call it sin. This thing of, I'm going to do things my way. I want things my way. This belief that we can find purpose and meaning in life within ourselves. And that, that idea... And that action in this world welcomed more and more sin and wickedness into this world. And we also have an enemy. We are, what we are introduced to the enemy that we have. Scripture introduces us to him. He says that he is the devil or called Satan, who was an angel who was created by God. But he wanted to be like God. He was cast out of heaven. A third of the angels were cast down with him. They are now, they are called demons. They are with him. And Satan is working to lead people away from following God by any means possible. So amidst all this brokenness, God called a man named Abram or Abraham to follow him with the promise. He says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and I'm going to bless you. And that, that promise to Abraham becomes central to the story of the New Testament and what God is doing. And so that begins the account in the biblical narrative of 
of the people who came to be known as the Israelites. There, there, there was this deliverance. God mightily delivered them, saved them from slavery in Egypt, eventually brought them into this land that God had promised them. And then it leads us into the account of the kings. And, and, we, and we get introduced to all the kings that were over Israel. King David, who was a central figure in, in the Old Testament, it says that he was a man after God's own heart. And that he would be promised a kingdom that would be without end. But, but then amidst all this, there's this ongoing issue of sinful and willful disobedience. This unwillingness of the people to follow God. They, they, they cannot live up to the standards of God's holiness. They keep engaging in all sorts of wicked behavior that hurt others. They're hurting one another. They're worshiping other gods. They're refusing to trust God and believe in him. And so God, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to them, warning them, saying, return to me. Come, repent. Be, be restored to me. I want to be your God. I want to have relationship with you. And this is the ongoing problem we see throughout the, the Old Testament, this unwillingness or this inability for the people to live according to God's righteousness. And we all have this problem, all of us. It's called the human condition that we have. And so amidst the judgment is this constant theme of God's desire, I want to be known to you. I want to be known as your God. And, and the prophets in the Old Testament too, they kept coming back to this promise that God is going to make everything new. That he is working. That he's going to rescue his people. In fact, that he's going to come to bring salvation, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. And so the prophet Ezekiel, he's one of these prophets, and he was, he's part of the exiles that were taken to Babylon. And he began, while in Babylon, he began to write what, about what God was speaking to him on, for the people around 571 BC. And in, in Ezekiel 36 and 37, it speaks of God's coming work for his people. It says, there, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give them a new heart and a new spirit. I'm gonna take out that heart of stone they have and I'm gonna give them a heart of flesh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make them want to follow me. And, and Ezekiel, he has this incredible vision of this valley of dry bones, all these dead bones, and they're raised up to life, and they are, they're clothed in flesh. They're made new. There's a new creation that comes. And, and he says there in Ezekiel 37, it says, God says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so then... The Old Testament ends with the promise in the words of Malachi, God will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And then things go silent for about 400 years. Nothing. Until we come to Jesus. And we come to, we have the problem, and now we have the solution. The accounts of the four Gospels tell this story of this man named Jesus of Nazareth who is fully man, yet fully God. And Jesus, he enters into public ministry at the age of 30. We don't know a whole lot about him before that. 
And he, he comes into public ministry by announcing, standing up in the synagogue and reading the words of Isaiah. And, and he says, I have come to bring freedom and to set the oppressed free. And he says, and as he says, he says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Like, you want to talk about an entrance? You want to talk about like, whoa, like it's like mic drop, I'm here. So we get to that point, and now, as Jesus comes into public view, we don't, we don't know a lot of how this happened, but he, we see that he's regarded as a rabbi. He's seen as a rabbi, he goes along and he invites others to follow him, to be his disciples as a rabbi, and he's going to teach them. And Jesus has quite the ministry, right? He's, got, he's, he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he has profound teaching that are just rocking people. He's operating in supernatural power again and again and again that they can't explain. Like, like everyone's looking around going, how is he doing this? And, and his claims are controversial to say the least. I just want to highlight just a few. He says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. Can you imagine if one of you just walked into a store and, and started proclaiming that? It's a bit controversial. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've come to call people to repentance? Imagine doing that one in, in winners. <laughs> I've come to fulfill the law. Your sins are forgiven. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. We don't even talk about where Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and a whole bunch of his disciples left him after that. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the good news will save it. He says, the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. He says, my father and I are one. He said, he said crazy stuff. He, he, Jesus just said crazy, crazy stuff that you go, who is this guy? Right? Like he, he, would, he would forgive people their sins and people would be like, what are you doing? And then he'd, and then he'd boom, he'd heal them miraculously and be like, now you, you want proof? Now I've healed you. And so th this idea that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, right, began to grow. And I'm not, we talked about that a couple weeks back, won't go into that. But, but he even, in fact, at one point, Jesus even claims to be the Messiah. In John 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he, he tells her, I, I am he, I am the Messiah. And then Jesus, I mean, he's, he's saying all this stuff, and then he, he starts talking about his coming death. And he starts talking about how he's going to, He's going, to be, he's going to suffer, he's going to be killed, but he's going to be raised from the dead three days later. In fact, he said it um, several times to his disciples. And the first time that he says it, Peter reacts to him and says, that's not going to happen. Uh-uh. And Jesus rebukes him. At another point, actually, when Jesus shared this with his disciples, it says that they were filled with grief. That, that, that wording struck me that, that at one of the points they were, the they, they of it began to weigh on them, what he was saying. 
The most concentrated section that we have in the Gospels where Jesus speaks about what is to come is John 14 to 17. It's where he speaks at length there about, I I have to go away, but I'm going to send this helper, this comforter, the Holy Spirit to you, and he's going to be with you, and he's going to guide you into all truth, and, and, and he's going to magnify me. It's, it's clear, though, when we read the Gospels about this and, and all of this, the disciples didn't understand all of it in real time. They, they, were, they were hearing all this, and it was after the fact, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, where they, they start to grapple with, who was this guy? And, and, and what did he say? It's clear throughout the gospel, they did not understand it and the implications of it all. But what the gospels claim is simply that Jesus is the solution for all people. That Jesus introduced a new way of living and he claimed to be the source of life all life was found in him. You know, it's, it's interesting because to, if, to this day, if you ask some people, uh, I found this really interesting when we did the Alpha series. Uh, I think it's both the youth and the regular Alpha series where they ask people on the street, like, who do, you, who do you think Jesus was? And they just go around and they just ask people, like, who was this Jesus? And, and, and there's several people that will say, and, and maybe you've heard this, where they say, well, he was, like, he was a great teacher. He was a great moral teacher. And this, that, that claim led C.S. Lewis to, uh, to reply to that, where he, if I can get my slide up, he said, this is, this is what C.S. Lewis said in response. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, think about just the breadth of some things that Jesus said. One of those sorts of things that he said was in John 14 where he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a really bold claim, right? Like, that's not a great moral teacher. That's either someone who's really a lunatic, doesn't know what he's talking about, or he may be God. He says, he goes on, he says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's claiming to be God. But, but here, see, this is where we come back then to the claims of the resurrection. What, what takes all of Jesus' life and his words to another level? He was raised from the dead. The fact of the resurrection is the validity for all of this. If you don't have it, like Paul says later in the New Testament, just forget about it. It, it was in this processing, I find this so, I mean, we, okay, we, we know this verse so well that I'm going to say here. 
But, but this is what John said as he's writing his gospel and he's processing everything. And I think we sometimes have to see this with fresh eyes where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He's processing all of it. And John's saying, this is, I've seen it. This is the conclusion that I'm coming to. So what, so what do we do with all this? I've heard about this problem, supposedly, that we have. We have this solution. What do we do with all this? Have any of you been present with someone when they pass away? Like, like in the moment? I, I have been. When, when, when that last breath leaves a physical body, it's a holy and a sobering moment. It, it, it is... Um, when you're in the room and that happens, there's something about it where you go, there's a finality to it of death that's really sobering. And it's, I say it's holy because God is the one who gives us every breath. And when that breath leaves the body, it's like there, there's an instant change and recognition that this physical life has ended. When Jesus died and was buried in the tomb, and it says, John says in his gospel, it's actually a really interesting little tidbit, that Joseph of Arimathea came and Nicodemus was the one there preparing his body. Nicodemus, the one who had met with him secretly at night now, was preparing Jesus' body for burial. And I want, to, I want us to think about that because that physical life of Jesus in the flesh was no more. He was beaten. He was battered. His crucified body from the cross had ceased to function. Jesus was physically no more. And I say that because the physical resurrection of Jesus is astounding. It's astounding. It, it, is, it, is, it defies human comprehension when you have seen someone physically die for there to be that body to be raised to life regardless of the state of that body is profound. So if it happened... And again, the historical evidence of it having happened is really, really credible. As strong as anything else that you will ever believe in history. Then do not Jesus' claims and his life warrant attention. Can we not trust someone with that level of credibility? I talked about the Apostle Paul a couple weeks back, right? And kind of his journey and the transformation of his life as a result of meeting the risen Lord Jesus as he traveled to Damascus. Everything changed for him. It changed his life. 
We, now, we don't, we don't have a theology textbook from Paul. I, I, we wish we did. So many scholars are like, man, if we had like a, just a comprehensive theology, if Paul had been able to write that, but he didn't. He just, he wrote letters. And, you know, the closest thing that scholars kind of admit that we have is probably the, the letter to the Ephesians, which was really a letter to a bunch of churches. And it's concise, but it's, man, it's incredible. Why? Well, because it was written along with the Holy Spirit, so that's one reason why it's incredible. But Ephesians 1, in there, Paul talks about the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So again, battered, bruised, beaten, crucified body, dead in the grave, the power that raised that body to life, he says, is available to us who believe. I don't understand that. I don't. I believe that it's true. I grapple with what the enormity of that. Because the death and the resurrection of Jesus wasn't a symbolic event, folks. It was a physical event. It happened on this earth. There was power that raised a dead body. And Paul says that power is in you. It's available to you. Now, in that, Paul then in Ephesians goes on to state the problem again, the, our problem, this problem that we have, this impact of sin that keeps us apart from Jesus. He says, apart from Jesus, you are spiritually dead. He's not, it's not condemning. He's, he's simply stating that, that the, the effects of sin are so horrible for us that they, they leave us spiritually dead. We, we are we're consumed by the things of this world. We're constantly trying to gratify our sinful desires. This is the state of the flesh. But God, Paul says, or but Jesus. But Jesus. It is, it's his physical death and resurrection that makes our spiritual life, our spiritual birth a reality. That there is real power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Real power. Do I understand that power? Can I harness that power? No, I don't understand it. But there was real power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power is available and lives in us. And what does it do in us? It brings real transformation in us, folks. It brings real transformation in your life. Do you believe that? If God can raise a dead body and give life to it, can he bring spiritual birth and transformation in you where you think, I can't do this? I think we sometimes struggle to believe that. I know I do. I really wrestle with that at times. Guys, I really, really wrestle with that. But I really believe it. So what, what are some common beliefs or ideas that we might have about why Jesus rose from the dead? Like cultural stuff that we've kind of just been maybe immersed in. Like stuff like, you know, Jesus rose so that I can have eternal life. Like I, Jesus rose so I can get, I can get to heaven. Yeah, true. 
Jesus rose so that I can get a get out of hell card free at the end of my life. I will escape judgment. I will escape punishment. Jesus will give that to me. We can think that. Or Jesus rose to make my dreams and my desires a reality. He just wants the best for you. Is that why he rose? Partially, yes, he does want our best. But it's not just about how we view that in our world. What does scripture say? What does Ephesians 2 verse 10 say? We have received salvation so that we can do the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. There's an enormity to that. That God has things that he has prepared that he, would, he desires for you to do. It's his good will that, that you walk in this. And, and he's given you salvation and raised you up into life so you can walk into this. So are we saved just so we can formulate the right set of beliefs and we can, we can have, hold, hold these convictions so we can, we can, you know, are we saved so that we can make sure that we're comfortable, that I'm right? Is that why we're saved? So we can develop a bunch of theology to make ourselves comfortable so that I know I'm right. And those people and that person and that person, they're, they're, they're wrong. They're misguided. But I'm right. What did Jesus say? It's actually really simple. Jesus says, follow me. He says, become like me. Receive from me. Invite others to follow me and become like me. Invite others. That's the commission. That's what we've been told to do. In our world, wherever we go, whoever we're interacting with, be like Jesus. Become like Jesus. Welcome others to follow and become like Jesus. And, and really, the, the rest of the New Testament, that, it's just unpacking that. That's, that's what the New Testament does. It's just unpacking everyday life, the reality of how do we become like Jesus? How do we follow Jesus? How do we do this? And the guy who said that the guy who said all that rose from the dead. As Jordan Peterson recently said, how many of you know who Jordan Peterson is? A few of us? This is what Jordan Peterson recently said. He said, I've got to give the resurrection more thought. This may be the most important thing, the most important topic I've studied or contemplated. Why? Why? Because Jesus changes lives. That's, that, that's, that's one of the basic things of the resurrection. Why we're even here. Why? Why is it such good news that he's no longer in the tomb and he's risen? Because Jesus continues to bring transformation and change lives. Jen, why don't you, why don't you come up? You know, as Jesus invites him to follow us, Follow him, sorry, not us, him, in the here and now. He 
He says that he's going to send his spirit to us. He promises, he says, I invite you to follow me, but I'm, I'm going to give you my spirit. Jesus promises in the here and now, right here, April 18th, 2022, he says, if you come to me, I will come and I will dwell with you. My Holy Spirit, I will send him to you and I will be with you. That's the promise. It's not believe the right set of beliefs and then try to get through life making it on your own. It's not that. It's I will come to you. I will help you. The promise is both eternal life, yes. Life that never ends because we're with God. But it's also transformation and life, new life in the here and now. And he asks that we surrender our lives to him. He asks that we lay our lives down for him. And he says, I will give you fullness of joy. I invite you to stand as we end. I invite you, if you want, you can pray with me. I'm just going to pray that Jesus would come. Jesus would dwell with us. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are right now. The Spirit of Jesus is here with us. We serve and we worship our risen Savior. I'm so thankful, Jesus. I'm so, so thankful. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you died, and that you were raised to life by your Father. We thank you that you are here and that you are offering us new offer us new life. We receive that, Jesus. We repent. Jesus, we admit that we've tried to go our own way, make it ourselves, convince ourselves that we're good enough, but Jesus, we need you. We thank you that when we, when we ask for repentance, you're faithful to forgive us, you say, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we hold to that truth this morning. And Jesus, we thank you that you are alive today. You are alive. You rose from the grave. You defeated death. And you will never taste death again. And your promise is that we will never taste death when we are in you. 